When facing a family law matter, it can feel like an overwhelming and never-ending court process. It's vital to know that things will look better on the other side if you hire legal counsel with the skill and compassion to help. At Stangy Law Firm, we represent clients in difficult family law matters every day. Visit FamilyLawRepresentation.com to schedule your consultation. That's FamilyLawRepresentation.com. Stangy Law Firm, here to help you rebuild your life. Stangy Law Firm has an office in Wichita. Kirk Stangy, 120 South Central Avenue, Suite 450 Clayton, Missouri. RPN, the Roddenberry Podcast Network. This episode of Mission Log is brought to you by ExpressVPN. Take back your internet privacy today and find out how you can get three months free at expressvpn.com slash mission log. This episode is also sponsored by Mint Mobile. Cut your wireless bill to as little as 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash mission log. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, episode 339, Indiscretion. Welcome to another edition of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm John Champion. And I'm Norman Lau. Each week, our mission continues, examining every episode of Star Trek, picking apart the morals, meanings, and messages contained therein. This week, we discreetly discuss Deep Space Nine's indiscretion at our discretion. And we promise to make a big step when it comes to discussing a few key character moments. Wait, what? Wait, a big step? A good big step? Or a bad big step? Well, I, I was I was referring to the show. I didn't say a very big step. I was just, I was referring to what's in you know in the episode. I uh. forget forget about the show. I'm talking about us. I tell you, I'm thinking about morals, meanings, and messages. And all you can say is, <sighs> ne- never mind. <laughs> but first, a word from ExpressVPN, giving you back your internet privacy. Norman, I'm so happy to say that uh, as a guy who likes to travel a lot, and it's not just traveling, but also just working wherever I can. Um, I work on these shows a lot. Sometimes I'm working in a, a restaurant or a coffee shop or somebody else's office. I am a big fan of ExpressVPN for exactly that. Um, I am somebody who didn't take my privacy and security seriously for a long time. But now I do, and now I'm very happy that ExpressVPN protects me and protects my privacy and security by making my internet browsing anonymous and hiding my public IP address. Now, all of that is great, all of that is wonderful, but there's also a little, uh, there's also a little trick to ExpressVPN that a lot of people may not be aware of. Let's say you're traveling, as I've got a trip coming up. Well, when you're traveling, you can actually change your IP address to be a different country. So let's say there's content, news, or programming that you want to stream and it's not available to you based on where you are. Well, ExpressVPN will allow you to change that country code that is your IP address so you can access all the content that you want. Now, protecting yourself with ExpressVPN costs less than seven bucks a month. It comes with a 30 day money back guarantee. And as I said before, whether I'm headed to a coffee shop or to a different state or a different country, ExpressVPN protects my connections and at speeds that impress me every time. So protect your online activity today 
and find out how you can get three months free at expressvpn.com slash mission log. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash mission log for three months free with a one-year package. Visit expressvpn.com slash mission log to learn more. And a big thanks to ExpressVPN for sponsoring this week's show. Now, Norman, I would appreciate it in the tradition of the dialogue that is Mission Log if you would let our listeners know where they can reach us. If you would like to contact us, please isolate your subspace carrier waves for the following contact frequencies. Mission Log Pod is where you can find us on Facebook, Skype, and Twitter. If you would like to leave us a voicemail, call us at 323-522-5641. Our email address is missionlog at roddenberry.com. Our show website, including discovered documents, is at missionlogpodcast.com. And remember, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. So, John, about taking a big step again. Here's John as he takes a very big step into this week's trivia. It's such a big step. It's such a big step for me, Norman. Uh, Trivia for this week's episode, Indiscretion. Well, we have a story by Tony Marbury and Jack Trevino, and it's another one of those Star Trek success stories where relative unknowns in the industry catch a break. They pitched this story loosely based on the 1956 John Wayne film directed by John Ford, The Searchers, and Rene Echeverria loved the idea. Uh, by the way, another quick bit of trivia about The Searchers. Guess who else was in it? Jeffrey Hunter, Captain mm-hmm. Pike himself. So this was a first professional credit for both of these writers, Tony and Jack, uh, in the industry at large. And they will share a credit again on an upcoming episode of DS9 very shortly, actually. I will get to that in just a few more episodes. And these are the only pro credits for Tony And while Jack has a few more, he also contributed as a writer to many Star Trek fan projects. Now, the teleplay here is by Nicholas Correa. There's a familiar name since last week. We mentioned Nicholas as the co-creator of the story for Hippocratic Oath, credited alongside Lisa Klink. Here he gets the teleplay credit, and he will go on to do one more each for DS9 and Voyager. Hey, this episode was directed by LeVar Burton. Very familiar name, of course. LeVar got his directing chops on TNG, where he helmed Second Chances and The Pegasus. This is the first of ten contributions he makes to DS9 before taking his director's chair over to Voyager and Enterprise, not to mention a host of other shows. Now, I do love location filming, and here we have another industry favorite, Soledad Canyon, located very near Santa Clarita, which is about 45 minutes north of L.A., or six hours if it's rush hour. And we've seen this location used before in Homecoming. Do keep in mind that it can be extraordinarily hot during the day there, especially if you're, say, in a costume and wearing heavy prosthetic makeup appliances. Interestingly, the exterior set of the crashed ship was brought up there without a real plan on how to use it. <laughs> so they had these giant pieces of a spaceship and they just thought, well, well, we'll take them up there. We'll just see how we can use them. And once the crew realized that they could kick around the loose gravel pretty easily, it was decided to partly bury the ship at a crash site 
and add a few more exterior details like wing fragments. Now, this also meant that they couldn't shoot any interiors there. It was too precarious with all the gravel, so that had to be done back on the stage at Paramount. And this story also gives us the first glimpse of the Breen, though we first got a mention way back on TNG. It was almost a running gag at this point that the writers could drop in the name Breen wherever they wanted without really defining anything about them, and they didn't know either. Uh, they hadn't gotten that far developing them. In this case, they had the pretense of the costume that was some sort of a suit to keep them cool on this hot planet, but it was decided early on to not show their faces at all. It would have meant partially committing to a makeup design, and they just weren't ready to do that yet. Now, let's talk about guest stars. Uh, we get to welcome back some very prominent DS9 recurring actors like Penny Johnson as Cassidy Yates and, of course, Mark Limo as Ducat, a character who has gone through a promotion since we last saw him. He's now Legate Ducat up from Gull, so congratulations on that. John, I'd like to jump in here for a second because I want to gush about Penny Johnson as Cassidy Yates. I oh, love, of course. love Penny Johnson. <laughs> She's and great, And you know, yes. you know how amazing it is? It's so refreshing to see a female character who has such agency like over aspect, every aspect of her life. She knows what she wants. She knows what she wants out of her career, of what she built by herself. And yeah. now she knows what she wants with her relationship with Benjamin Sisko. And I'm so glad that I get to enjoy her acting quality and just seeing her again on screen as Dr. Claire Finn on the Orville. Right. And what I think is really great about her character there is that, again, she's another strong, independent female character. And this time around, she's, uh, she actually has two sons in tow alongside managing her career. So it's, it's such a great treat to see her back in the science fiction milieu. How cool. Very good. Yeah, uh, Penny Johnson is great in pretty much everything. <laughs> so, yeah, shout out to her. Hey, in this episode, we are introduced to Tora Zial, played by Sia Batten. And Sia had a handful of TV appearances before starting her association with Star Trek. She'll be back on DS9 in this same role. Then she'll make appearances on both Voyager and Enterprise. And finally... We welcome back Roy Brocksmith, this time as the Bajoran smuggler Razka Karn. Now, you might remember him from an earlier Star Trek appearance when he was Sirna Kolrami in the TNG episode Peak Performance way back in Season 2 of that series. Roy was a very distinct actor, though, and while you might remember him from Picket Fences or Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey... He is almost universally recognized for playing Dr. Edgemar in a short but tense scene in 1990's Total Recall. Sadly, we lost Roy in 2001 at the age of 56. A missing ship. A couple of explorers from different sides of the tracks. Two competing agendas. Wait, didn't we just do this one? Let's see if we can get the details straight. Prologue. As Major Kira meditates in her quarters, she is interrupted by a brusque message from Lieutenant Commander Worf. He says that she has an incoming transmission from an old friend, a Razka Karn. Worf puts the call through, and as Kira sits down at her console, 
A raggedy old Bajoran male appears on her monitor. Kira and Razka briefly reminisce about the good old days of his former smuggling career, now turned scrap metal merchant. She then curtly asks why he has contacted her. Razka says that he has information on the Ravenok, but Kira is wary of this information because previous news of the Ravenok was just a rumor. Raska claims that he has physical proof, a fragment of metal that could be the Ravenok's forward sensor array. Kira agrees to rendezvous with Raska at his hiding place in the Badlands so that he doesn't expose himself to prying eyes. Reminding him that it's been six years since the Ravenok's disappearance, Kira remains skeptical, especially if there are any survivors. But she knows Raska is right when he tells her, There's only one way to find out. Act 1. As Constable Odo delivers his routine security briefing for Major Kira, and while uncharacteristically making light of a criminally incompetent pickpocket named Trelos Vren, Odo observes that Kira is entirely distracted. She confesses that she may have a lead on the Ravenok. Odo rolls his eyes, and Kira thought that she was soon to suffer another one of Odo's sanctimonious lectures. But to her surprise, he simply wishes her good luck. Odo knows once Kira puts her mind to something, there is little to dissuade her, especially after she told him that a friend, Lorit Akram, was on board the Ravenok when it went missing six years ago. As Kira prepares for her trip, Captain Sisko visits her and informs her that the Cardassians have learned about her excursion. They want her to postpone her departure so that a Cardassian delegate can be assigned to her search efforts for the Ravenok. Sisko reminds her that it was a Cardassian vessel. She sharply retorts, carrying Bajoran prisoners. Sisko sternly encourages Norris, stating that Bajor and Cardassia need to start cooperating on missions like these. Kira agrees to these terms under protest and will be leaving with or without her Cardassian guest in 52 hours. Later in one of the airlocks, Dax, probably in equal parts Jadzia and Curzon, gives Benjamin a good ribbing about his current love life. Coincidentally, Captain Cassidy Yates runs into them and tells Benjamin that she's applied for a freighter captain's position with the Bajoran Ministry of Commerce. If she gets the job, she wouldn't have to leave the Bajoran sector or Deep Space Nine. Unable to help herself, Dax, most likely influenced by the mischievous Curzon, asks Cassidy where she will live and even volunteers Benjamin to help her find quarters on the station, to which Sisko, totally bewildered, simply uttered, yeah. Even in space, when it rains, it pours. Shortly after leaving Cassidy and Dax, Sisko arrives in Ops. Worf declares that the approaching Cardassian transport Rabal has requested to beam the Cardassian representative directly to Ops. To everyone's great dismay, especially Kira's, the delegate that is beamed to Ops is another than Gull, now Legate Dukat, with travel bag in hand and an air of smugness which preceded him, even before he materialized. Act 2 Heading towards the Badlands to meet with Razka, Kira brusquely outlines the rules and agenda for this so-called Bajoran Cardassian operation. True to form, Dukat graciously and disarmingly accepts her terms. Kira demands to know why the Cardassian government sent him of all people. Dukat explains that the Ravenok and its personnel were under his general command and thus his responsibility. Kira begrudgingly revealed that she was on this mission to find Lord Akram, the man who brought her into the Shakar, the famed Bajoran resistance cell, or rather infamous in Dukat's estimation, 
being overly garrulous even for him, Dukat prattles on on how he admires Kira, how she is the new Bajor, how the Cardassian occupation in many ways helped Bajor, to which Kira spat back at him, which part, the massacres or the strip mining? Avoiding a tete-a-tete with her, Dukat admits that, although overly harsh at times, the end result of the occupation was a stronger and more capable Bajoran people who, thanks to the Cardassian forging and tempering, are now prepared to be a key influence in the Alpha Quadrant. Unwilling to give even an inch, Kira breaks off the banter and suggests that silence and meditation would be the best course of action until they reach the Badlands. Back on Deep Space Nine, Captains Sisko and Yates are enjoying a rare dinner evening together. Cassidy asks Benjamin how he feels about her current job offer. With a very and unenthusiastic congratulations and a peck on the cheek, Benjamin utters, It's a great idea that they will see more of each other. Excited about her new job, Cassidy remembers Dax's suggestion about getting quarters on the station, to which Benjamin replies, That's a big step. Oh, boy. Taken severely aback by Benjamin's less-than-enthusiastic response, Cassidy is deeply concerned about his nonchalance this entire evening. And with one phrase, Benjamin literally just, in a few words and in seconds of time, turns an entire romantic interlude into something just bizarre, as seen all over Sisko's expression and Cassidy is stormed out of his quarters. Kira and Ducat finally meet up with Raska in the Badlands to examine firsthand the salvaging question— as Dukat uses his tricorder to confirm the metal's composition, he and Razga exchange certain barbs at each other, veiled threat that Dukat ignores in the spirit of cooperation. Razga pointedly reminds Dukat that this so-called voice of the new Cardassia was a brutal savage taskmaster who put many Bajoran slaves to the whip only a short five years ago. Dukat confirms that the salvage is, in fact, from the Ravenok, as Kira and Raska discover that the Ferengi trader who first found this salvage recently returned from the Dazaria system. Thanking Raska for his help, Kira and Dakot set course for the only and barely M-class planet in the Dazaria system. Along the way, they exchanged theories regarding the fate of the Ravenok that forced them this far away from Cardassian space. Upon reaching the Dazaria system, Kira advises Dakot that beaming down would be deadly due to the high level of ionic interference in the atmosphere, which is wreaking havoc on their sensor's ability to find any signs of life. Kira suggests that reaching the planet's surface the old-fashioned way and politely refuses to give Dakot the driver's seat. After reaching the surface and trudging through several kilometers of hot desolation, Kira and Dakot discover the scattered remains of a ship that has haunted them these last six years. They found the Ravenok. Act 3 at Quark's, Dax and Bashir stare at Sisko with grave concern in their eyes and ask, It's a big step? That's all you said? Benjamin explains that's exactly what he said. Or was it? It could have been worse. He could have said, It's a very big step, Julian adds, as Sisko sits there embarrassed about this entirely ridiculous series of events. Even Quark chimes in with his rather oblique relationship advice, albeit from a culture well-known to trivialize women, so there's no help there. Brimming with irritability, Sisko dryly thanks everyone for their relationship briefing, leaving Dax and Bashir to ponder the big question that Sisko masterfully avoided. 
does he want Cassidy to stay on the station or not? Meanwhile, in the Desaria system, Kira and Dukat inspect what is left of the Ravenok. Based on the external damage, they surmise it was brought down by phaser fire, perhaps after a fierce battle. Furthering their inspection, Kira comes upon a mass of 12 stone burial mounds that may contain Cardassian or Bajoran remains. Dukat insists that he inspects the remains alone in accordance to strict Cardassian funeral rites. He even appeals to Kira's sense of religious tolerance by citing Kai Maressa, who once said, What remains after death is but a shell, a sign that the Pa has begun its final journey to the prophets. Slightly moved by Dukat's understanding of Bajoran religious beliefs, all Kira wants are the Bajoran earrings, if any, to identify the deceased from their family imprints. Kira tells Dukat she would work on the Ravenok, and even before he could offer her the command codes to access the main computer, she retorts that she got them from Bajoran intelligence before they left. With admiration, or was it fascination? On Dukat's face, they both get straight to work. Dukat unearths several Bajoran earrings and artifacts from the 12 gravesites, and Kira succeeds in powering up the main computer. Reporting in on her success, she sees Dukat staring wistfully at a Bajoran pledge bracelet that he found amongst the remains. He told Kira that it belonged to Tora Naprem, a Bajoran woman who Kira believed was taken as his mistress, a common practice amongst Cardassian officers during the Bajoran occupation. But Dukat proclaimed that he was truly in love with Naprem, and that his wife never knew of his infidelity. Kira sifted through the handful of earrings that Dukat unearthed, but Loritz was not among them. She informs Dukat that from the Ravenok's computer logs, she discovered that it was forced to crash land by two attacking and unidentified warships. Surmising that there was the potential for a few survivors based on the few graves that were exhumed, Kira informs Dukat that members of the Bajoran resistance were implanted with a special tritonium isotope, which was activated after being captured so they could be located and rescued. Locking onto a promising signal with her tricorder, Kira and Dukat gear up and head away from the Ravenox gravesites and towards a more hopeful direction. Later that evening, while resting and breaking to make camp, Dukat leaps up screaming in agony after sitting down on a nearby stone slab. Shrieking for help, Kira obliges Dukat and yanks out what appears to be a giant thorn, and she hands him a dermal regenerator to heal his wounded pride. While using the dermal regenerator completely wrong, Dukat's embarrassment is met with Kira laughing almost uncontrollably, no doubt coming from a mixture of several parts relief, exhaustion, and a very much needed break from the tension from the last few days. During this levity, they each tear into a few very barely palatable field rations as Kira asks Goldakot about Tora Zial, a 13-year-old civilian girl who was also aboard the Ravenok, as stated on the Passenger Manifest. Kira believes that Dukat's sincerity and haste to find the survivors was to rescue his daughter, but in fact, Dukat reveals that he is on a much different mission. To kill her. Act 4. Kira and Dukat continue following the tricorder signal towards the possible survivors. Kira declares that she will not let Dukat kill Zial while shaming him with the fact that supposedly Cardassians value family above all else. Dukat retorts that his duty is to his legitimate wife and seven children. Kira proposes to take Zial back to Bajor and hide her from prying Cardassian eyes. But Dukat is resolute and believes that Zial wouldn't be accepted by Ezer race as a half-Bajoran Cardassian children are considered outcasts. He also admits that he put Naprem and Zial on the Ravenok 
to spirit them away to a secluded location on Lesepia to find peace and a normal life. Dukat confesses to Kira that his political station on Cardassia has been compromised and that his political rivals and enemies might use Zial against him. Kira cannot comprehend the depths that Dukat would entertain in order to protect himself and his political career, but Dukat tries to explain that he indeed loved Naprim and loved Zial, but must kill her to protect his legitimate family and political reputation on Cardassia, and he will weep over her grave when this is all over, an act of perverted remorse that Kira cannot even comprehend. Back on Deep Space Nine, instead of sitting down to breakfast, Benjamin sits down to a relationship intervention with the last person he would expect to wax poetic on such matters, his son Jake, with a little wisdom sprinkled in by Nog. Jake tells his father that he's just scared and would feel responsible if things between him and Cassidy didn't work out. Jake and Nog think that Benjamin should respect and accept the decision that Cassidy is making for herself and how she wants to move forward in their relationship. Once again, Captain Sisko sits still, bewildered at the wisdom from out of the mouth of babes. Well, the mouth of teens in this case. Kira and Dukat have finally reached the source of the signal and discover a Breen prison camp, specifically a dilithium ore mining facility of which the prisoners are most likely being used as slave labor. Through Kira's binoculars, they spot a young girl dispensing water to the workers. It's Dukat's daughter, Zial. Act 5. Kira and Dukat argue about who is going back to Deep Space Nine for reinforcements to help raid the camp and rescue the prisoners. Kira refuses to leave Dukat for fear of him executing Zial while she is gone. Dukat refuses to leave and suggests they work together to save the prisoners. Kira makes it very clear that if Dukat harms Zial, that she would kill him. Dressed in Breen armor, Kira and Dukat infiltrate the camp and subdue several more guards inside. Making contact with one of the Bajoran prisoners, Kira is told that 31 Bajorans are still alive, but Lorit was killed in a cave-in two years ago. Breen guards open fire on Kira and Dukat as they are trying to round up the surviving prisoners. Pinned down by disruptor fire, Kira is engaged trying to protect their escape, while Dukat uses this diversion as an opportunity to search the caverns for his daughter. In what seems to be a utility chamber, occupied by a young woman filling water buckets, Dukat dispatches the only guard and obstacle standing between him and his daughter Zial. With his rifle and a steely gaze both trained on her, Dukat calls out to Zial. She turns to face her father, and her joy turns to confusion and fear as she stares down the barrel of his weapon. When Kira finally catches up with Dukat, she pleads with him to spare his daughter's life. Zial was told by the surviving Cardassian prisoners that Dukat would never let her return home. She tells her father that she dreamed he would one day rescue her from captivity and would rather die than to live a life without him. And in that moment, the purity of Zial's love appeals to Dukat's paternal instincts and shames him into dropping his weapon. He kneels down, pulls her close, and embraces her, saying, Let's go home. Kira standing there all the while in disbelief. Back on Deep Space Nine, Benjamin finds Cassidy in the midst of taking inventory for her ship. He tells her that he wants her to take the job with the Bajoran Ministry. Knowing that this is coming from a talk with Jake, she quips, he's a smart boy, must take after his mother. And at that moment, Sisko swallows his pride and admits that he is scared about being in another relationship because he believes that his career in Starfleet was responsible for getting his wife Jennifer killed. But she tells him that these decisions are hers to make, as are accepting the consequences for good or ill. Oh, and just to be clear, she already took the job. Just because Benjamin got cold feet at the start doesn't mean that she shouldn't take the job. Not according to Captain Cassidy Yates, 
who tells him that he's got a lot to learn about women, especially this one. She finally tells him that when she gets back, he can help her pick out her quarters. As Dax and Kira stroll across the upper promenade, Dax pries Kira about her time alone with Dukat. After telling Dax about the absurdity of Dukat sitting on the sand spine, they conveniently run into him before he leaves for Cardassia with Zial. He thanks the Major for a most interesting journey. Dukat tells Kira that after being abandoned for six years, Zial deserves a home and a father. Feigning concern, Kira asks if the new situation would make life difficult for Dukat, knowing that he said his political enemies would use Zial against him. Looking deep into Kira's eyes, he calmly, perhaps even coldly, responds with, I'll let you know, and walks away, leaving Kira with an expression of confusion and admiration for a man who she thought she had all figured out. The end. Yeah, a, a mouthful and well-performed. <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> hey, um, really quickly, before we get into our uh, our pithy observations here, curious about something you said in the last paragraph uh, about how Dukat coldly says, uh, I'll let you know. I, I kept, that's a shot that I rewatched over and over. You know, even mm-hmm. after I'd watched the episode several times, like I kept trying to play that back going, okay, are they playing any subtext here? I think Kira pretty much not because Kira is just surprised and still a little weirded out by Dukat. She's trying to figure him out. Mm-hmm. But Dukat, I, I wondered, is it cold? Is it friendly? Is it sly? Like, here's the thing about Dukat. What, what makes him so appealing is you never really know. And to me, I, I kind of landed on thinking there was almost this, like, implied intimacy with that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, I, and I don't mean romantically, but I, that, that is a note that we'll get into a little later, I'm sure. But but just, like, he's letting her into his life a little bit. Like, uh, she's curious, and he just sort of acknowledges, like, yeah, you'll, you'll be in the loop on this, <laughs> you know? Check, 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 and check. So this is all of the above. And when it comes to Dukat, you never really know. I think with any Cardassian, yeah. you never really know. Yeah, I think that's fair. All right. So uh, speaking of Cardassians, as we are, so another one of those uh, at the top of this episode, very dramatic reveals that in real life would have no reason to exist at all. So Dukat is coming along on this mission. Uh, there are literally two days before the mission, uh, before it actually happens, between the time that Cisco tells Kira, hey, the Cardassians want to send somebody along. And nobody told Kira who it was. He just shows up on the transporter pad. Boom, here he is. I mean, yep. <laughs> no, nobody has to, like, file a manifest. Uh, nobody sends an email. I yeah. have many theories. Okay. Of which I will respond to later on. All right. I know we're going to get into it. I know we're going to get into the theory. Shout out to the Tholians, uh, often getting name-checked, so rarely seen. We've only seen them in TOS so far, but glad to to know they're still part of the Trek universe. Oh, oh, and uh, by the way, that line early on, uh, somehow the Cardassian government got wind of your plan to search for the Ravenok. That's what uh, Cisco says to Kira. And I mean, that's fast. 
that that is so because she's just been having a private conversation uh with a guy who's like come meet me in a place that nobody can find us and we know that odo monitors some of the communication going in and out of deep space nine i don't know if he would uh do that to kira necessarily garrick we don't know what kind of tap he's got on the phone lines there so look i just news traveled super fast so this reminded me of when Cisco and Jake were on that solar sail ship. Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. And for some reason, Ducat knew exactly when, how, and where to find them and to claim yeah. and to claim that as a bit of Cardassian history oh. just because yeah. I have, wait for it, people. Okay. Okay. I have a very well-documented conspiracy theory that i'd like to discuss later on okay good so uh, we're we're just counting the moments here until the the norman lau grand unified theory of cardassians i cannot wait Can't savor wait this moment this. all right uh let's see a, a funny line i thought uh Raska says regarding the planet well it's barely class m Mm -hmm. <laughs> just what it what a nice little throwaway and you know what in his estimation it's uh barely like you can hardly breathe there quark has a, a funny line who knows more about women than me and of course bashir follows up with everyone so nice can i ask you a question about that john yeah 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 and all the listeners to chime in when you want to mm -hmm. with the emails and stuff starfleet and the federation and all these beings in the 24th century I know that Quark and the Ferengi are a, a very misogynistic race, and we know how they treat women. Yes. But at the same time, though, everyone kind of rolls their eyes at their culture. But it is their culture, right? It, it is. Uh, I'm not saying I don't have a problem with that. And I, we, we've talked about this a little bit before on Mission Log, and I know we're going to get into more of it the further along that we go. I, I feel like th this is one of those tough calls where – how much influence does Starfleet or the Federation or whatever this more enlightened progressive culture that you have, how much do they feel like they need to just outright influence or, or be critical of as opposed to just being a better example? Like you get a little bit of that with Jake, just like, I, you know, he and Nog are not going to see eye to eye after that failed date <laughs> that they had, the double date. Right. Um, but is in Jake's interest to just still be friends and be a better example. Because then we saw that little bit of future Nog in The Visitor mm -hmm. where mm -hmm. he's like, yeah, I realized that I shouldn't treat women the way that I did. Sort of a call back to that doomed double date they had decades before. I wonder about that, you know, or is that part of the price you pay for joining the Federation if the Fringe ever were to become members? You say, like, hey, you can come join our amazing club, but you can't treat the females of your species this way. It's just one of those instances where it seems a little holier than thou to me at times. Mm -hmm. Because, okay, they have other species that are on the station and they're okay with the way the Bajorans act religiously. They're okay with the Klingons act barbarically. Yeah. But for some odd reason, whenever Quark who consistently always offers up his opinion, 
they have a problem with that because as, as the analog uh, to the audience, we as the audience are, are repulsed by the way that the Ferengi treat women. Right. And I totally understand that and I get that. But at the same time, though, it is their culture. It is in his right to express his cultural beliefs. It, it is, but I, I think you also are making a distinction here to say, like, okay, the Bajorans have a religious belief. Now, as far as we know, that religious belief does not single out and subjugate any particular person or class within their social group. Now, it, it doesn't mean that, uh, say, Kai Wen is not uh, totally a horrific pain who uh, terrifies me every time I see her, but <laughs> maybe it would be a different thing if uh, there was something about that Bajoran religious tradition, of which there are many, because we've seen different versions of it within DS9, that goes after one class mm -hmm. uh, on their planet and says, yeah, those people will have fewer rights. Mm -hmm. and, and maybe that's part of the distinction. I don't know. I, I'm a little uneasy with it because I, I see where you're coming from. And, and in the spirit of Idic, you kind of have to say, oh, well, infinite diversity means we have to accept every cultural norm from every other culture. But at the same time, there has to be a logical limit on that. There, there has to be a place where you can say, well, if we accept everything at equal value, then we, we really have no principle. We're, we're just saying, oh, sure, we accept that. Yeah, but I mean, they can disagree with it, but not in a disparagingly public way. Yeah, well, I, I mean, it's just me. I'm, yeah. I'm always the one who says uh, ridiculous ideas should be ridiculed. So I might be part of that group with uh, Bashir uh, just publicly mocking <laughs> Quark's ridiculous ideas. Uh, but, you know, yeah, we'll see. I do. I, I want to move on a little bit in this because this is an excellent discussion to uh, to continue to have as we talk about Ferengi for sure. Uh, Kira has such a great line uh, calling out to Kat, "You are in love with the sound of your own voice." I love it because it's not just about him, but so many Cardassians that we've met. They are such great orators, and they have such a dramatic flair, and I really respect that. Do you know what I loved? I loved. When Dax and Cisco were, you know, they were in the airlock and then Cassidy runs into them and Dax says, you should help her find quarters on the station. And I don't know if it's a note that they gave to Avery for Cisco, but he just turns to her with this look and he's like, will you please shut <laughs> up? It was very genuine. Yeah. <laughs> I liked that a lot. Hey, speaking of finding quarters in the uh, Cisco and Yates romance here, uh, we got to see what Cisco is serving up. And I do mean food. Uh, looked like a little pan fried chicken breast. Could be fish, uh, you know, not sure. Uh, maybe some mixed vegetables and a salad of some sort. All looked very good. So uh, uh, tip of the hat to the food stylist. And um, not a huge deal to be made of this here, but I'm glad that you pointed it out in the recap. The interesting contrast about death rituals and how Cardassians put a great value on physical remains while Bajorans do not. Um, they didn't go deeply into it. I thought it was a nice way to further deepen their cultures and their divisions between their cultures. So that was, uh, that was very cool. 
Oh, and, and by the way, since we were talking about death rituals, uh, I know that this is a drama, and I know that we have to have story elements doled out at exactly the right time and in exactly the most visual way. But can we talk just for a second about digging up graves? Um, I, I looked it up. Ground-penetrating radar was patented in 1910. Uh, the military kicked this research into high gear in the 1970s. I'm just going to go way out on a limb and say that a tricorder would be able to tell who was buried under those rocks. Well, let's not forget metal detectors. I mean, people can find bottle caps and coins. Yep. <laughs> let yep. alone yeah. Bajoran pledge bracelets. Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. But Adding to my theory, my conspiracy theory, mm -hmm. I personally believe that this entire event was staged because Ducat wanted to put on a emotional performance for Kira. He wanted her to see him weeping over this bracelet. Man, oh, oh, okay, we're, we're oh, we're just counting the moments until we get to the grand unified Cardassian theory. We're, we're going mm -hmm. to hit that. All right. So speaking of Ducat and Kira. Let's talk about the scene with the spike uh, when he sits on that. Uh, was it played a little too broad for you? I will reserve my comment for the grand unified Cardassian theory that okay. I have. Okay. I, I will say that I love the idea of that scene and why it's there, but I don't know if I love how it was played. But maybe this just all folds into the the copyright registered trademark Norman's Grand Unified Cardassian Theory. <laughs> I think we need to make a t-shirt for that for our Mission Log listeners, I think especially we do. for our Patreon supporters. I think so, yeah. <laughs> One of the things that actually bugs me about, not just about this episode, but about science fiction in general, mm -hmm. because I think that we are a little bit more creative than what we see, MREs are meals ready to eat. It's, it's a well-known fact that the military, all militaries around the world have these instant food packs that they can eat. But this is the 24th century. Don't you think that they would have some type of capsule or some type of just more advanced technology to give their, their soldiers or people on long extended missions sustenance? I mean, think about it. I mean, Willy Wonka created gum. <laughs> You know, it that was an entire like a, meal. a roast beef dinner, right. Exactly. Yeah, I know the blueberry yeah. was, a, a, was a problem with Violet. We all uh, know that. Yeah, whatever, yeah. But also, say in Star Wars and The Force Awakens, Ray dehydrates this great giant loaf of bread. I love that that's scene. Just a food, right? Yeah, yeah. So I'm just thinking, because that they have these away missions and because they've pretty much outlawed or, or discontinued the use of pockets because technology is so great in the 24th century, then why are they carrying all this stuff? Which leads me to my next gripe uh -huh. observation. Backpacks. Why backpacks? Why backpacks? Oh, yeah. Right. So think about this. So yeah. with eliminating the use for pockets or picking things up and stuffing them in your pockets or your overalls or whatever you have, mm -hmm. they, they focus on the fact that they're carrying these giant backpacks, which is literally a gigantic pocket. <laughs> so... With, with the advent of replicators or just thinking about, again, these food capsules or things that would miniaturize all of these survival pieces of gear, yeah. why carry a giant backpack? Yeah, I, you know, I, I have no answer for that. You know You're how, so right. Do you know how hard it would be and how heavy it would be to trudge that through all of that desert when they were finding the Ravenok? Make it light, make it airy, make it so yeah. that you're not spending energy carrying uh, anywhere between a 25 to 30 pound rucksack. Yeah. 
they, they have, they have tremendous amounts of power available to them, and then it just seems like there are some gross inefficiencies when it comes to an away team uh, uh, kind of survival gear. Yeah. They I, should have uh, read Frank Herbert's Dune closer and modeled <laughs> a little bit more of the still suit technology into their away team gear. That's, that's, that's my opinion. Call. That's a good yeah. call. Hey, uh, there was another, I just kind of have to call it a, a production thing, a, a, a dramatic uh, issue here. There's a cut between Act 3 and Act 4. So uh, that's the moment, at the end of Act 3, that's the moment in the cave where Dukat says that if his daughter is still alive, then he has to kill her. Okay? Go to commercial, right? Then the next shot is Kira and Dukat talking in daylight about his daughter again. So this is one of those things where uh, you just kind of have to ask, yourself, wait, what, what happened in the meantime? Because he drops this dramatic moment and then you just see Kira fade to black, go to commercial. And I was thinking, Kira, th- this is Kira. She's leaping up. And so like, you're going to do what? No. And th- this turns into an all-night discussion slash argument uh, with her being very indignant, rightfully so. Um, but it's just, it's kind of a funny, like, TV thing. We have to show the passage of time. We have to show it's the next day. We'll just pick up the conversation again. So we're to assume that 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 exclamation would have happened somewhere between dusk and dawn. Yeah, or or if you go by the logic here of the way that cut happens, uh, he drops his bombshell, and she's like, oh, okay, good night. And then the next day, okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> now, right. Now we'll talk about this. The conversation stops until the, yeah. until the commercials are over. Yeah. Yeah. You know, one thing that also thought was maybe, I don't know, because I'm watching Deep Space Nine for the first time and a lot of this stuff is fresh in my memory. When Cassidy says to, to Benjamin at the end of the episode and after Benjamin talks to her about what Jake told him in terms of relationship advice, she says, Jake's a smart boy, must take after his mother. Wow. That was, Ooh. wow. Oh, <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, look, she and Cisco are close, but uh, that, I think that crosses a line. I thought that was a little too soon for her and their relationship to bring something like that up. Yeah, I know that they were trying to make a point where, you know, Cisco was afraid that he was going to get into a relationship and that relationship may cost him dearly later on. But even so, that is a little too sharp. Yeah. I for me. do not disagree. Don't 24th century rations come from replicators? I mean, if you can replicate any food at all, it just seems like you could replicate the rations you like. From eggs, bacon, and spam to spam, bacon, sausage, and spam to spam, bacon, sausage, and spam, to lobster thermidoro cribbets with a more We'll get back to indiscretion in a moment, but first, a word from Mint Mobile. If you're still using one of the big wireless providers, you know the ones that I mean, have you asked yourself, why? (laughs) What are you really paying for? Well, between expensive retail stores, inflated prices, and hidden fees, you are probably being taken advantage of because they know that you'll pay. This is where Mint Mobile comes in. Mint Mobile provides the same premium network coverage you're used to, but at a fraction of the cost because everything is online. Mint Mobile saves on retail locations and overhead, then passes those savings directly to you. So I've been trying out Mint Mobile for, uh, well, a few months, and uh, it's very impressive. And the thing that I like the most is simplicity. 
simple rates, simple to understand, and it just works. Works for everything, like surfing the web and streaming music, video, everything just works how you want it to work and for a lot less money every month. So Mint Mobile makes it very easy to cut your wireless bill to as little as 15 bucks a month. Every plan comes with unlimited nationwide talk and text. And with Mint Mobile, you're only paying for the amount of data that you need. So you can choose between plans with 3, 8, or 12 gigabytes of 4G LTE data. You keep your phone, you keep your number, and best of all, you keep more of your money. So to get your new wireless plan starting at 15 bucks a month and get the plan shipped to your door for free, go to mintmobile.com slash missionlog. That's mintmobile.com slash missionlog. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash missionlog. John, I wanted to set the stage here at the beginning of our discussion with a look at this episode's title, Indiscretion and how it applies to the overall narrative. Very good. The Merriam-Webster online definition of indiscretion states a lack of discretion, which equals individual choice or judgment in this case. And I'd like to specifically point out two aspects of the indiscretion that I believe is at the heart of this narrative. One, Descartes' infidelity and fathering of Zial with his Bajoran lover, Tor Napram, and Captain Sisko's so not suave line, it's a big step. <laughs> so these are indiscretions on both of their parts. I mean, uh, uh, clearly with Ducat, yeah, that, that is the biggest indiscretion here is what happened in his past. And now he's got to pay the price for it uh, or, in his case, try to cover it up. But Captain Sisko, his, his moment of indiscretion uh, with Cassidy Yates. Uh, maybe not quite as big a deal as Ducat's, but, but still a lack of judgment you're, you're saying here, Norman? That's exactly. I mean, based on the strict definition, and I think it's a lack of judgment based on a lot of extenuating circumstances. His fear for the relationship. Obviously, he's falling in love with Cassidy, so he wants to protect her from harm the harm that would come to her based on the harm that came to Jennifer because of his career in Starfleet, especially now in Deed Space Nine, where the fringe of Federation space is quite ungoverned and incredibly dangerous. Mm. Yeah. Well, let's talk about just some of the, the different points. And I, I think we have uh, a myriad of discussion points here. So I'll kick things off and just say that, uh, like right out of the gate, I think this episode shows some great character depth and development for Dukat. Uh It's been throughout the series so far, throughout this episode in particular. He and just the Cardassians in general, just still one of my favorite aspects of DS9. Uh, DS9 has done a very good job of building these uh, sort of far-reaching and long story arcs, long character arcs. We've gotten a lot more detail about Bajorans. We've been digging into the Dominion. We've sort of reintroduced the Klingons here and given them some depth. But every time we come back to something that is Cardassian-centric, um, very interested in that. And that's what I, I mentioned earlier when we were doing Way of the Warrior, that I felt the Cardassian and the Founders, the Dominion, the Jem'Hadar, all of those storylines that have been 
really well developed and matured over the last three years before we got to season four, I felt that that momentum was really kind of curtailed by the addition of the Klingon storyline. Because I find the Cardassian culture so incredibly fascinating, of which I will make specific inferences of in my trademark theory. Got it. Got it. Um, Ducat has, uh, he has quite the conversation with Kira early on when they're in the uh, runabout. The occupation helped Bajor. And he starts to lay out this description of how the Bajorans had gone soft, but now the occupation gave them something to unify around and fight for and made them stronger. And it is a twisted, horrible logic. It's almost painful to hear this come out of his mouth. And at the same time, it is not all that hard to believe that someone would believe it, that either if he doesn't truly believe it, he would have an easy time convincing himself of that or convincing other Cardassians of that, even if he certainly doesn't convince Kira in this moment. You've heard the uh, the theory that the villain doesn't believe he or she is a villain because they believe what they actually say or do is the right thing to do. Yeah, and I think that's some of the very interesting stuff that we get in Star Trek is that the the villains are... I mean, you take an ultimate villain like Khan. He thinks he is doing what is right in his twisted, horrible way. I mean, it is all a matter of perspective, and I'm not turning it into like the Ferengi versus, you know, cultural uh, disrespect. But Mm -hmm. in this case, in this case, I'm not sure if everyone out there is familiar with the term gaslighting. I'm sure that you are, John. Yeah, yeah. There was a famous film uh, way back in the early 1900s, I think like the 1940s or something like that, uh, and it was about gaslighting. And what gaslighting was, because gaslighting, being lit by gas lamp, being lit by gaslight was a thing before the electric light bulb. But in this movie, there was a man who convinces a woman that she is actually insane when she's not, when she's being abused and when she's being mentally tortured by her husband. In this case... What Ducat is doing to Kira is probably the greatest, the greatest representation of gaslighting I have ever seen in Star Trek because he's trying to convince Kira of what you just said. And he believes that he's right. And he's trying to persuade her to turn her opinion that Bajorans actually are better off now than they were before because of what they did, because of the atrocities that were, that were committed against her people. But now... They have, from that chaos and from that darkness, they have risen like the phoenix from the ashes, a stronger, more capable, more fearsome Bajor. Yeah. And you should thank us for it. it it's horrendous. And, and, and the whole point of gaslighting is, yeah, to get into somebody's head just long enough just to make them even consider this insane other view this other proposal uh so they start to question their reality and that's exactly what he's trying to do here kira obviously is made of strong stuff but you can see how this would be a point of view that cardassians would have to justify their own behavior and then try with every available power to them to spread this among uh, bajorans and anybody else who will listen so let's talk about the the plot point here of Ducat uh, on this mission to kill his daughter. 
Uh, do we at any point think that Ducat would actually kill his daughter? Uh, because that, of course, is a dramatic tension leading up to this with Kira being the one to step in and say that if he does it, she will kill him. Um, and then we also have to figure out what are the repercussions for Ducat when he goes back home. Either the repercussions for him had he killed his daughter, or now the reper repercussions when he goes back, now that he goes back with this heretofore unknown daughter to the rest of his family. I mean, if I may be so bold to give LeVar Burton a note, mm -hmm. just from an observational perspective, I feel that there needed to be some ambiguity in the scene where Ducat finally confronts Zial and he could have used the, the Breen guard as a way to, to kind of create that, that air of ambiguity because all of a sudden Kira comes upon him. He's standing in front of her. They have this moment and Ducat is staring Zial down with his weapon. But if you saw kind of like a blast when Kira arrived and she saw somebody just drop and fall, he could have easily, or she could have easily thought that that was Ducat murdering his daughter. It was very clear that he was standing there. Kira was there. She threatens him, like, don't kill him, don't kill her. And then all of a sudden things kind of resolve in a very Star Trek-y kind of way. Right. But if there was like right. this one scene where she's like, oh, when Kira comes out, she's like, oh my God, what did you do? Yeah, yeah. Then I think that I think that would have given just the audience a little bit more pause and 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 feel like what Kira felt like the, just this moment of horror and take a take a step back and take a deep breath and like oh wow what just happened yeah but then it kind of resolved and and the bubble is burst and all that tension's released out of the air and you're like oh thank God he didn't kill her <laughs> no I I agree that. Um... Yeah, that, that would have ratcheted up the tension for the audience uh, in that most definitely. How, though, all right, how do we feel about Ducat's uh, not-so-mild flirtation here with Kira? Booking. <laughs> what? What? <laughs> what? Excuse me, I'm sorry. Uh, my bunnies, they must have, like, thrown a hairball at my... <laughs> acting, acting. Now, now, wait a minute. Okay, I, but this is not out of the question. It's, it's So it's one thing that he could have had a love affair with a Bajoran. Again, pulling from real life, uh, as the Cardassians, there are so many historical parallels for them, but particularly, you heard of uh, Nazis who had Jewish mistresses. But I feel like there is something even worse here about laying it on Kira. He was the head of the occupation. He killed her friends. And I, maybe that's kind of why I had problems with that scene of the broad laughter in the cave mm -hmm. is that, yes, you have to show some understanding, some personal connection between the two, but but man, I get the creeps when he's laying on the flirtation, and I'm glad and relieved that Kira doesn't reciprocate. So in understanding the Cardassians, as we've seen them through Chain of Command Part 1 and 2, and subsequent, subsequent representations of what the Cardassian military, at least military or soldier culture is, the, you know, uh, with Garrick, with the Obsidian Order, and the way that the Cardassians kind of govern themselves— in my opinion, no Cardassian ever acts without direct intent or levels of planning. 
They never act spontaneously as far as I can see. Hmm. And in this case, I don't think that he's actually said anything to Kira that he hasn't actually thought through and planned specifically to engage her and to provoke a reaction that benefits him. He is a user, a professional, cold-hearted, steely-gazed user who does everything that he does because he wants to benefit himself, period, without question. Uh, Now, first of all, interesting because uh, that would be exhausting. (laughs) Um, But I, I feel like we've gotten all these glimpses all along of Ducat actually having a pretty complex emotional life. We've heard about his family um, in the episode Defiant, uh, mm-hmm. in which the Defiant is stolen and uh, Cisco has to sort of align with the Obsidian Order to prevent an all-out disaster. Uh, you know, there's that great scene of Dukat talking about how he's missing his son's birthday. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it seemed genuine. Am I... Am I wrong here, Norman? Is that what you're I saying? Th- well, I think it's a matter of perspective because the way that I see that, and that's a great instance because, you know, he's sitting there talking to Cisco. He's trying to connect with Cisco as a father. He's like, I'm going to miss my son's birthday, but duty comes first. But I believe that Ducat is very much like Hannibal Lecter in this situation. Well, Hannibal Lecter and Clarice Starling have a very trepidatious relationship it's built on quicksand and a very very thin modicum of trust now sure there may be an underlying level of attraction there maybe physical maybe more so but i believe that dakot sees kira as a project she is one of the last remaining survivors of the shikar resistance a cell that he said was so irritating to the cardassian military they tried and failed and time again could not stop them. But there she is, dangling in front of him like this, this low-hanging fruit. Mm-hmm. And he sees her as an opportunity that if I break Kira, the first officer and representative of, Bajor- of the Bajoran provisional government on Deep Space Nine, if I break her, I break the Bajoran people. And that's way too tempting for him to turn down. So the way that I see Dakot is that Every opportunity that he makes or takes or invents or evolves is solely because he's trying to further his own agenda, whatever that agenda may be. Now, that's not saying that the two ideas of him being genuine and him furthering his agenda are mutually exclusive, but he's so good at what he does, you can't help but just just bask in the fact that there's something else going on. It's not purely altruistic. I don't think anything with him is particularly altruistic. I, I guess I, you know, you make an interesting point here. Um, I, I agree with you. I don't think those things are mutually exclusive. Um, he can be manipulative and playing this sort of complex game of 3D chess in his head. Um, but I also see him almost like the Vulcans. Like the, the Vulcans are logical to a fault, but you poke them long enough and they have this deep, seething, emotional life underneath that they're mm-hmm. just trying to tamp down beneath the surface, whereas the Cardassians, they're, they're sort of like, all of that is cranked up to 11. They will justify anything that they do with these layers of uh, 
you know, logic and, and things are thought out and it is correct because they say that it is the correct and right thing to do from their perspective, but they have all this bubbling up emotion. And um, a guy like Garrick, certainly we've seen act emotionally. I would even say impulsively. I think Garrick has acted impulsively before, uh, but maybe Ducat is just a, a harder nut to crack. I Look, I, I bought it that he is starting to let his guard down that he did with Cisco and that he did with Kira. Uh, but you're, you're telling me that I am just, uh, I'm just falling for the grand conspiracy that is Dukat and or Dukat and the Cardassians. Well, I'm not saying that I'm not falling for it either. I'm just, <laughs> you know, I'm just kind of like outlying what I do believe that Dukat has in store as his master plan because he is, so skilled in the art of what we would call the cell. He tells you exactly what you want to hear. And in doing so, he's able to slide his agenda in at the deepest subconscious level because all he needs is less than an inch and he has you. It's, it's, it's standard interrogation process where if you doubt just a smidge that's just enough. And that's what the Cardassians have been kind of labeled as is all about all this time, especially Garrick. You know, with Garrick and his, his advisor, his, 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 his mentor in the Obsidian Order, mm-hmm. all they wanted to do and all they are really, really prideful in doing is to break people to their agenda. And Goldicott does it far more charmingly. And this is where I come to the grand conspiracy theory. All right. <laughs> Lay it on me. Okay, so in Goldicott's case, if you want to do something right, like killing your lover and illegitimate child, you have to do it yourself. John, hmm. I submit mm-hmm. that Dukat was responsible for the Ravenock all along. I submit... <laughs> That Dukat ordered the attack to cover up the scandal that would have haunted him politically. And now in this episode, the loose threads that Kira has pulled to find her friend dredged up with Dukat was dead and buried. I submit that all of Dukat's actions on the planet were a masterful performance and well-crafted and scripted fiction intended and successful at varying degrees to disarm Kira and her guarded attitude towards him. The love story, the guilt over his abandoned lover, the desperation to save him, the tears that he weeps over, their, over her grave. Mm-hmm. Even looking at, and this is where I want to make a point, even looking the fool sitting down on that thorn, uh. all masterfully performed to make Kira give him that small benefit of doubt to the smallest degree. Now, bear with me here. Listeners, kind of follow me around the room. <laughs> Based on established Cardassian military canon, whether a file clerk or the Obsidian Order, Cardassian soldiers are trained to be precise, methodical, and organized to a fault in their orthodoxy to catalog records. So, do we actually believe that a ship full of Cardassian soldiers and possible Bajoran resistance fighters, a la the Shakar resistance, for whom Dukat was militarily responsible, as he said, 
would have just vanished without a trace. And if Kira and a smuggler could find it, don't you think the Cardassians could have found it more easily? That is, if someone wasn't covering the scent and masking the trail all along. My evidence to this fact, because I can hear the listeners going, what? Yeah, and people don't know that I, I can see Norman, and he's literally, he's walking around the room. He's got, like, there's bulletin <laughs> boards with pictures and pieces of string dragged out and, and uh, question marks written on the board. Yeah. John, like Lieutenant Caffey, I've pulled out my baseball bat, and I'm going for Jessup. <laughs> all right, all right. Let's, I'm let's hear the Jessup. evidence, because you, you've, you've made some interesting claims that are all based on a lack of evidence. So here, uh, here is my evidence. Okay, and this okay. is all this is all hinging on the meticulous nature of Cardassians and why, for some odd reason, for six years they could not find this Ravenock ship. Now remember, Cardassians are patient, methodical, organized, and mentally sharp. They are expert note takers and accountants. There is very little to suggest that they would have lost all accounts of the Ravenox for a total of six years. Evidence point number one. In season one duet, Eamon Maritza, he said, I had the good fortune to be posted to the records office at Galatep, and I turned out to be an exemplary fire clerk. In 14 units of service, I never misplaced or lost a record. I received numerous commendations. Goldar Heel himself called my computer filing system a quote-unquote masterpiece of meticulous exactitude. Well, there you are. My secret cell, my crimes laid bare, I await execution. Mm -hmm. That okay. speaks to the effect of Cardassians at that level of being meticulous note-takers. Yes. Example yes. the two. Okay. Example the two. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. In, seasons, in season two Cardassians, Garrick states... The Cardassians are quite meticulous record keepers, madam. They taught many worlds, including this one, how to keep records. I f and here is my sticking point, John. Okay, okay. This is what Garrick says. I find it difficult to believe that none exist from that period. Certainly, computer entries were made on a regular basis. Based on these two points of evidence, in my opinion, there is no conceivable way that Goldicott, at his level, would have lost contact for six years of a ship that he was in charge of, unless he wanted them to do so. Man, that's... Um, you've laid out a very interesting case. Uh, you've made the case for the Cardassian propensity to keep records. I will give you that. What we don't have evidence of here is the cover-up just uh we have motivation and we have a lack of information i oh ah uh, see i it, this, this all <laughs> like this looks good on your bulletin board i'm gonna give you that for sure and, and we understand gull Ducat, well legate Ducat's uh motivation here I think, I don't know, man, I, I just want to believe that he has this rich, overdeveloped emotional life, and uh, this was just a mistake that got past them somehow, and now he's got to deal with it. I, uh, I, I don't know if I can buy the conspiracy, but listen, I think we do need the t-shirt. I think we need a picture of your bulletin board. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Yeah, I, I, I got no way to counter that. The, uh, the gray area here, the ambiguity uh, for, for our discussion lies in the fact that there were unnamed or unidentified ships that brought down the Ravenock. Now, sure, that could have been a coincidence that there could have been some resistance to the Ravenock in unknown space. I can get that. But it just lends to the cover-up because the Ravenock, being a Cardassian military ship under Goldicott's command, doesn't have any single record of any kind of these ships attacking them at all? Unless, unless uh-huh. Uh-huh. those ships were masked, their identity was masked because Goldicott knew how to get around military protocol when he sent his assassination ships to bring down that ship. What would it cost him? It would have cost him several of soldiers of his own command, but it would have saved him the embarrassment of a political scandal if he eliminated the two women that would have brought him to justice in that sense, in the Cardassian justice sense. And this also follows into my Die Hard 2 conspiracy theory. <laughs> Remember when there was that one soldier that was assassinated by all of those other army, uh, ar- uh, those ex-Special Forces guys that were firing blanks and the great John Amos cut that guy's throat? Uh-huh. Those guys, they were the Cardassian soldiers. They followed their leader's commands to the letter and they sacrificed. Dukat could have probably told him, you're doing this for the best of Cardassia's interests. <laughs> You know, this is see that this is exactly my problem with conspiracy theories. Like every every step of the way, you just added more people, more resources, more technology. You threw all these things at the problem. It, there's no end to it. There's absolutely no end to it. Well, I, he thought that, that he thought that there was going to be an end to it with the destruction of the ship. He thought he thought, right. but like but like most conspiracies, though, there is a thread that just makes it fall apart because there there's evidence there's there's physical pieces out there and and in this case you you have a, a real actual person, you have his yeah. daughter um, but how did he know that Kara was going to keep pulling that thread so hard? That was the one factor he couldn't that he couldn't uh figure in in the the equation of all of this that someone who is so doggedly determined as Kira would unravel his entire plot. Well, Norman, I'm, I'm not going to say that I'm the more romantic of the two of us, but maybe, maybe I'm just moved by a Cardassian's tears. Cardassians are very good at giving us answers without much truth. You want the truth? You can't handle the truth. John, conspiracy theory Nonwithstanding, <laughs> do you feel that this episode holds up to the mission log tradition? Norman, the last time we had a conspiracy, it was so easy. You just you beam down to Earth, an admiral tries to serve you some nasty worms in a bowl, you shoot it, his head explodes, boom, Rimmick head debris everywhere. That, that's a conspiracy I can get behind right there. Um, look, this episode, I, I think there is so much going on that is so well played it absolutely holds up it is well acted there is great production value yay for location shooting i miss mentioned that last week how i missed it and a decent level of suspense so kind of have everything that i want i absolutely agree i think this is a 
fantastically produced episode. It looks gorgeous. The sets and the location shoots are obviously awesome. I've actually had a chance to visit Soledad Canyon, so that kind of you know that kind of rubs me the right way when I see locations that it, you know, for Star Trek that I've actually wanted to see and now yeah. have seen. It's a great episode. It it just looks great, with the exception of maybe the whole backpack thing, because that thing just I'll never just get over. <laughs> right. I, I will say that the only minor, and it's a very minor quibble that I have, is that it's another story back-to-back in which two mismatched people go to a planet in search of a damaged ship. There's even a, a magneton uh, pulse or whatever here in this one, too, uh, only to find that their motivations are misaligned when they get there. So it, it feels like a lot coming right off of Hippocratic Oath. And I felt the same way too. And then I remember in Hippocratic Oath, we were talking about how certain production orders were kind of jumbled around based on certain people's shooting schedules. I know that Colmini wasn't right. available for Hippocratic Oath when it needed to be filmed, and Renee was under the gun filming Hippocratic Oath. So wasn't wasn't this episode supposed to follow the visitor, which would have given a break between this and Hippocratic Oath? So it would have been Way of the Warrior, then Hippocratic Oath, then the visitor, then this. Then the visitor, then this. Yeah, yeah. That would have created a little better separation. Yeah. Because I, in, that, that... in this episode, I believe... Well, see, Way of the Warrior had the Wharf storyline you know, introduced into Deep Space Nine. And then if Hippocratic Oath came then Worf's storyline with Oda would have continued naturally at that point when he said that quote about, you know, uh, Gowron said, if, it's, if Gowron says it's victory, then it must be victory. So that would have continued from Way of the Warrior. Then we would have had yeah. Hippocratic Oath, then The Visitor, and then this. Right, right. So that would have broken, yeah. up, it would have broken up that issue with, yes, two very similar plot lines with uh, an away team party at odds with each other trying to find a damaged ship. Right. And then I will say that, you know, the B-plot, first of all, personally, it's very hard for me to relate uh, to a man who says something incredibly boneheaded while in a relationship with a woman he cares about. That that just completely escapes me. Um, don't understand that at all. Uh, however, you pointed out uh, the wisdom uh, out of the mouths of babes, or in this case, the teens, as you put it, Jake and Nog. Um, I, I love the simplicity of it. If things don't work out, they don't work out. I, just, say la vie, hakuna matata. That that's you, you just you do it. You you act with your heart and and what is right in the moment. And then if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. It's okay, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and and it's nice to see Jake just to say like, hey, go go have your life, <laughs> you know. I think that in, there are two sides to every relationship story, and obviously we're focusing on Cisco's discomfort with with that line, with the, it's a big step line. Mm -hmm. Right. And everyone sees it from that point of view and kind of comes to Cassidy's defense, rightfully so. But at the same time, though, no one really comes to Benjamin's defense. You know, no one really understands where he's coming from, from his point of view. So the question that I'm asking you and I'm asking the listeners, because I'd love to have some commentary about this, did Cassidy just overreact? I mean, there, to be fair, there are three sides. There are always three sides to every story. There's your side, in this case, Benjamin. There's Cassidy's side. And then there's the real truth. And all yeah. we're really seeing from those three sides is the perspective of everyone coming to Cassidy's defense. Again, I get it, but 
there wasn't really any exploration of Benjamin's feelings, too, until the very end where Cassidy kind of throws Benjamin's wife in his face. Right, right. No, I, I actually, I totally agree with you. And, and it doesn't excuse Benjamin. But to that point, could you look at what she does as an overreaction or, or at least uh, maybe not a soon enough attempt to sort of get into what he's really thinking? Because um, he, he has some line about that, like, um, I didn't know what I was thinking, I was scared, and she just kind of throws that back in his face mm-hmm. instead of, in an adult way, just saying, hey, let's talk about this, I need to understand what that means. Right. So, yeah, yeah, I get, and it is a little disingenuous to see everybody around Ben just like, oh, yeah, you, you screwed that up. Except for Quark. You're wrong. Except for Quark. Except for, except yeah. for, but we know where Quark <laughs> is coming from. All right. In, in all of this, um, what about messages, morals, meanings? I'll, I'll go first just because I'm, I'm so curious to see how you connect this to the grand unified Cardassian theory. I will say that not only can you not hide from your past, it is a far better thing to own up to your past. Um, I actually feel like, uh, even if it's a situation that was forced upon him, uh, he was forced to reconsider, it is a better thing for Ducat to face this head-on and have to live with consequences. And I will say that the A and the B plot have at least a kind of a similar theme. Here's where you and I, Norman, are going to part ways because you think this is all contrived, this was all thought out. I think that it wasn't, because I would land on a position to say you can't outthink everything, especially not in the murky area of relationships. So uh, that's what Ben Sisko has to do. He can't outthink it. He just has to live it. He just has to be in the moment that is happening to him. Uh, sometimes you just have to embrace and accept where things take you. That's what Ben needs to do. And in a, a much more sort of tragic way here, Ducat has to own what has happened to him. He can't outthink this situation, but please tell me I'm wrong here, Norman, because you think that he has thought out all of this. John, are we actually having our own Hippocratic Oath moment? (laughs) We might be. (laughs) We might. All right, so here I'm just going to fire a phaser and blow up all of your work and research. Okay, Okay, go right ahead. Go right ahead. So in my opinion, in the way that I saw this episode, in dealing with the Cardassians, it reminds me of this very famous parable Many of you know it, and if you don't, it's worth reading. It's called The Scorpion and the Frog. Sooner or later, the Cardassians will sting you, drowning you both in that lake. Why? Because it's just in their nature. Let me put it another way, John. And to paraphrase Captain Kirk from Star Trek VI, I've never trusted Cardassians, and I never will. I will... Never forgive them for the atrocities at Galatip. <laughs> That's super well done. Norman, Norman, it, it's Star Trek. We have to learn how to see the humanity in our enemies uh, so we don't just become like them. It, it, isn't that where we have to end up, whether it's a Cardassian or a Klingon? That's what Kirk had to learn in Star Trek Six. He had to get past that and see the Klingons as, as people who could be understood and and empathize with and sympathize with. Isn't that what Star Trek teaches us? 
I think, John, at the end of our project, especially at the end of Deep Space Nine, all I can say is maybe you've restored your faith in the Cardassians, and in doing so, you've restored their faith with me. All I have to say to that, Norman, is Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. Executive producer, Rod Roddenberry. Check out all the shows of the Roddenberry Podcast Network, podcast.roddenberry.com. There you will find Mission Log, Mission Log Live, Women at Warp, Priority One, The Trek Files, your daily Star Trek news, and Shabam. Shabam! If you'd, like, if you'd like to support Mission Log directly, you can do so at patreon.com slash mission log. For more Star Trek news and discussion, be sure to visit trekmovie.com. On the next mission log, rejoined. After all that, I've decided to start working on my Cap 10 Kirk impression. How am I doing so far? End transmission. Roddenberry.com, the Roddenberry Podcast Network. So, you've got an idea for a business, the store of your dreams. There's just one thing to figure out everything. That's why Shopify's all in one commerce platform makes it easy to sell online, in person, and everywhere else. Sell on social media, source products with an app to get that first sale feeling. It's the only solution that gives you everything you need to sell everywhere you want. So when you're ready to bring your idea to life, power it up with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. 